This is first Peter chapter two, verses 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Do you recognize these words? I swear or affirm that I will be faithful. If you're a Canadian citizen, then you should recognize these words because uh, they are the oath of a Canadian citizen. Uh, let me read you the rest of the oath. I swear or affirm that I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to his majesty, King Charles III, King of Canada, his heirs and successors, and that I will faithfully observe the laws of Canada, including the Constitution, which recognizes and affirms the Aboriginal and treaty rights of First Nations, Inuit, and Métis peoples, and fulfill my duties as a Canadian citizen. That's the oath. Now, do you understand the meaning of the oath? I appreciate the government of Canada's explanation of how we should understand the oath, so I'm just pulling this straight from Canada.ca, and they explain, in Canada, we profess our loyalty to a person who represents all Canadians and not to a document such as a constitution, a banner such as a flag or a geopolitical entity such as a country. In our constitutional monarchy, these elements are encompassed by the sovereign, queen or king. It is a remarkably simple yet powerful principle. Canada is personified by the sovereign just as the sovereign is personified by Canada. And especially as a Christian this morning, if you consider yourself a Christ follower, uh, I want you to see how incredibly Christian the understanding of this oath is. The, the principle, the idea is very much akin to our faith. So let me explain. Christians, too, profess our commitment and union to a person who represents all Christians, and not ultimately to just a document or a law or a geopolitical entity with physical boundaries. And so even with respect to Scripture, the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, our commitment to Scripture is only as good as much as we truly see Jesus, the person, in Scripture, and only as good as our commitment to receiving Jesus Christ and his grace, and overflowing his grace through obedience. And just as Canada is personified by the sovereign, so much more is the church of Jesus Christ, the actual body of Jesus Christ. We're not just a personification, but we're his body. And just as the British sovereign, vice versa, is personified by Canada, so much more is Jesus, our Christ, the one true sovereign represented by the church. And so what I'm trying to get at, and I want to tease out this, this just thinking about citizenship a little bit more, is uh, if we understand the nature of citizenship, uh, it'll actually help us understand God's call on us through Peter to be citizens of the heavenly kingdom. Now, just to tease it out a bit more, uh, if you weren't born in Canada, then you have to go through a citizenship test or an interview. 
and you'll be tested on two basic requirements. First, knowledge of Canada and the rights and responsibilities of citizenship. And two, adequate knowledge of English or French, meaning language. Can you speak the language of the country? And so I think we can imagine, just imagine a citizenship test for Christ's kingdom. Of course, let me be absolutely clear. I mean, the Lord tests our hearts. That's clear in scripture. But, and, and we're generally, our faith is tested, but there isn't going to be a written test when we uh, get to, to uh, stand before the judgment seat. But he will certainly test. But if you just imagine, just fancy me, if there were a test, I think we would be tested on, first, our sheerly grace-based union with Christ, that, that we understand we're saved by grace, not by our works. Two, our knowledge of the Father's love. And I say this because in the New Testament, the exhortation is there and the encouragement. Again and again, I hope that you'll grow in the knowledge of the love of God and to experience that. And then three, this grace and this knowledge of the love of God has to overflow, has to be demonstrated in our lives, the overflowing Christ's love for A, his church, B, as mission to the world, and that our spirit-enabled obedience to God's word and a bearing of good works, that, that that would be there, that would be evident. So as we work through today's scripture, I hope something will stir in your heart by faith, something uh, like this. Lord, as your beloved, help me to be holy. Now, if you're wondering, wow, I, I've heard this a lot in this series through Peter. And if you're wondering, he's bringing that up again? We shouldn't be surprised. Now, as Peter elaborates today's passage, just these two verses, we're going to just take our time through them because he elaborates on what it means to be holy, what it looks like. Why? Because as citizens in God's kingdom... We are called to be holy as he is holy. We, we can't get tired of hearing that. And that's a basic. Just even think of someone who, who has excelled and advanced in their career, their skills and whatnot. It really comes down to basic fundamental skills that you just do better and better and better. But it's basic fundamentals that you repeat over and over and over again. And the Christian life, the, the, the journey of discipleship and following Jesus is no different we need to keep coming back to this basic that we are called to be holy as God is holy. That's our identity. Holiness is meant to be in our blood, so to speak, because of the blood of Jesus Christ that covers us and courses through our souls and redeems even our bodies. So we shouldn't be surprised that similar to other just organizational questions in the past, we're asking again today, uh, what does it look like to pursue holiness? What does it look like to pursue holiness as a Christ follower? We're to think about holiness a lot, really every day, even every moment. If you're a note taker and thrive on outlines, here's my outline for today. Uh, pursue holiness as God's beloved. Pursue holiness with a long hug. <laughs> Okay, I know, yeah, I'm piquing your curiosity. Don't worry, I'll explain what I mean by that. Uh, pursue holiness inwardly from the heart and pursue holiness outwardly through your conduct. So let's get into it. What does it look like to pursue holiness as a Christ follower? First, pursue holiness as God's beloved. Now, where do we see this in the text? He begins today's passage with the simple word, beloved, beloved. 
Beloved, now let's remember Peter's flow of thought leading up to this uh, verse 11 of chapter 2. And by the way, if you missed Colin and John's sermon from the last two Sundays, please catch up. They are worth taking in. And most recently, last week, John unpacked our identity, reminding us that right prior, Peter declares our identity in four beautiful and important ways. First, but you are a chosen race. We're a new ethnicity as Christ church beyond just the color of our skin and what uh, country of origin and so forth. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. And why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, just a little bit more teasing out of this whole marvelous light notion. When there is unblemished beauty, uh, you are all the more enthusiastic to spotlight that beauty under marvelous light, are you not? When there's a work of art, when there's a sculpture, when taking a photo of someone and so forth. And of course, before Christ redeemed us, that light exposed our sinfulness, our spiritual ugliness but then he transforms us and brings us into his marvelous light and we are his beloved. And what Peter is doing here is continuing the whole idea. He wants us to remember, he's applying the fact that we are his chosen race, his holy nation, etc. Beloved. And we can't forget the mind-blowing depth of God's love for his people. Peter references Hosea calling Gomer his intentional wife of choice, a prostitute, but still calling her who was once not a people, now a people, and Gomer being metaphoric, personifying God's people, Israel, and now the church. We were once not a people, but surely because of God's choosing love, we are now his beloved people. This is why Peter begins today's passage addressing Christ's church, as beloved. He's continuing this theme of being God's precious, chosen, spotlighted people. So you can't underestimate and you can't overestimate the importance of our belovedness. Are you worshiping right now where you're seated with a clear view, security, comfort in your belovedness? by the Father in Christ? Does the Holy Spirit, can you sense the Spirit just testifying to your own spirit and to get your spirit to cry out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. And and that cry of Abba, Father, even just in the the, the Greek of it, it's, it's a desperate cry. A child with full trust and throwing him or herself into the security of the loving Father's strong embrace, crying out, Abba, Father. That's what the Spirit wants to testify to our own spirits. This is your born-again birthright as a child of God. So live into it. Do you know your belovedness? Are you remembering it right now? Let everything good in your life overflow from the fountainhead of your belovedness in Christ. Not convinced? It's important then, let me try to convince you all the more to understand just even in the language, the Greek, the root of the word of beloved here, the the root of it is the same word for agape love. So if you want to just translate it kind of woodenly, 
to the one who's received an agape love, to the one who has been made worthy of love because you have received Christ's sacrificial serving love for you. Just a contrast. Here's the point. Um, if it wasn't agape love, let's say just friendship love, then Peter would have just chant, would have addressed, hey, buddy, right? That's how he might have started this paragraph. And it's so much more deeper than that. Beloved, one who has been made worthy of love because you have, by sheer grace, received Christ's sacrificial serving love for you. Now, here's the point. The way it's supposed to make a difference in our lives. It's a lot easier to pursue holiness from a place of belovedness. Holiness, it, it's, it's a two-edged sword because without the right motivation, holiness can become a slave master pursuing it. And we could just, it can bring out ugly parts of us, judginess and, and impossible expectations of one another or shame and guilt just festering and being defeated in our faith. But it's a lot easier to pursue holiness. The, the overall, by filled with the Spirit, the overall upward, but really truly roller coaster ride of pursuing holiness. We're more motivated to grow and mature. At least I am. I, I hope you experience this dynamic of the gospel in your life. It's, I'm more motivated to grow and mature when I know I'm beloved, when I'm unconditionally accepted, when I'm esteemed by God as his chosen people. You want to grow into the fullness of your identity in Christ, into your spiritual calling when you know you're beloved. This is the gospel. This is the gospel wrapped up in this one word. That by sheer grace, you are so beautiful and precious and made without blemish by Christ's blood covering you and coursing through your soul. And therefore, you want to grow in holiness out of a response of love toward our holy God. Give you an analogy. It's it's like when you're dating someone you love and you're in love with them. You naturally want to put your best foot forward. Remember those days for the older couples here? Hopefully it's still happening. Hopefully that's still repeated even as you grow older as a couple, but you put your best foot forward. You you are willing to dress up better. You're willing, you naturally speak more tenderly, more winsomely. Heck. About the only reason I'll shave these days if Linda really requests it and we go out on a date. (laughs) Our pursuit of holiness is is meant to be like that. It's meant to overflow from a a belovedness. And all the more when it's a gospel belovedness. Well, moving on. I think Peter wants us to pursue holiness with a long hug. I know that catches your uh, interest, your curiosity, what do I mean by that? And so let me explain. So where do we see it? We see it right here first, that we see the hug in, in this word urge. Beloved, I urge you. So notice that word urge, the long part of the hugginess will, will come in the words to follow. But this word for urge, we have to understand it's a mashup of three ingredients. Uh, first, you have to take encouragement, and you mash that up with comfort. So encouragement can be very inspiring. It lifts you, elevates you, but but it's not always comforting per se. It's more like inspirational, but you mix in there comfort, encouragement with comfort. And then the third ingredient is 
almost a, a healthy begging, a pleading. And you mix those three ingredients together, and that's what Peter means by urging. And so another synonym for that might be to exhort. Peter, we could easily have said, beloved, I exhort you. And exhorting is that mix of encouragement, comfort, and some even pleading, imploring, begging. So what human experience combines all three emotions of being encouraged, comforted, and, and imploring, begging? My best answer is a hug. <laughs> that, that's why I'm giving you the metaphor of a hug. But I want us to think of a specific kind of hug. I want us to think of a soldier's long-awaited hug of his family as he returns home. Now imagine the heart of a soldier. Here we have a picture. Father returning, hugging his princess daughter. She's in a princess dress and his two sons. And imagine a soldier he finds himself fighting in a foreign land. The soldier is longing for home and beloved family. The soldier is very much a sojourner, a foreigner, as he's fighting in that foreign land. Also imagine the soldier father or the soldier mother finally being able to embrace their loved ones. And there's a layer of urging that's going on in that deep hug, that deep embrace. There's a, le a level of begging. There's a level of comforting and begging and urging all going on, all mixed up in a ball of emotional embrace. Don't go back. The children might be begging in their hearts. But thank you for your good fight. Keep living for the truths you fought for. Please stay with us. I love you. All those elements of encouragement, comforting, and begging going on, all in that soldier's hug. And so similarly, Peter is reminding Christians that we are sojourners and exiles longing for home. That's where the long part comes from, the long hug. We're sojourners and exiles on this lifelong pilgrimage. And similarly, we're to fight a good fight with the goal of returning home. And so I urge you, there's the hug, here's the long Length of the hug, sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. There's the fight. Peter is very clear in his mentality towards our pursuit of holiness. It's meant to be a fight, like a soldier. It's a war. And so we're to fight a good fight with the goal of returning home. And so I hope you see it with me. And so we're to pursue holiness with a long view as sojourners and exiles trying to make it back home. And, and so to put it differently, we are not, you might literally be a permanent resident of Canada or a citizen of Canada, but literally we are first and fundamentally not permanent residents or citizens of Canada or this world. That, that's not just an abstract thought. Like, yes, functionally, you have whatever passport at home in your file folder, and you pull it out when you go traveling. But literally, fundamentally, from an eternal perspective, our truest citizenship is with Christ and his new creation and his eternal, consummated, after this life, 
kingdom. Now, it's important to understand that this urging, when Peter says, beloved, I urge you to understand that it's right up the alley of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. How do we know this? Because recall, Jesus himself calls the Holy Spirit paraclete, advocate, helper. And that's the same root for this word urge, parakaleo. It's what Peter wants us to know and experience and feel in our hearts is the same powerful ministry of the Holy Spirit coming alongside us and urging us, being a helper, being an advocate. And John, he explains that not only in his gospel, but then in his first letter, he actually uses the exact same word for the Holy Spirit, paraclete, the urger, in a sense, the the long hugger for Jesus as well. That Jesus is identically our paraclete, like the Holy Spirit. So, let me bring some contrast by saying what being a sojourner or exile is not. If any in the Christian community have any misunderstanding of what it means, Peter was writing to what we call the diaspora, those Christians who are um, spread out because of persecution. And he uh, addresses them as aliens and strangers, sojourners and exiles, even in today's passage. And if any in the Christian community misconstrue that for being uh, escapist or just isolating ourselves from the world, Peter dispels that illusion. And what Peter wants us to know, we'll get deeper into this in in a few moments, but he wants us to wrestle with what it means to be a faithful citizen of the kingdom as we're living in the world how to most effectively bear witness to Christ and his kingdom and God's ways. So similarly, we're we're to pursue holiness with the heart of a soldier longing for the loving embrace of our loving father, our savior, elder brother, Jesus, the paraclete, and the spirit, the paraclete, who's witnessing to our souls that God gives us this exhorting fight as we persevere to the end. So this is where now we need to think about then, and Peter wants us to think about pursuing holiness inwardly from the heart. That's where it starts. And so we see, just going back to verse 11, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter makes it so clear that there definitely is an inward battle, an inner battle of the heart. We see it most uh, just directly in saying that we wage war, these things that wage war against your soul. There it is, the inner life. Our emotions, our thoughts, our will, that's where the battle is at. That's where we have to be alert. But we also see Peter's priority of the inner heart in his phrase, Abstain from the passions of the flesh. I mean, abstaining in and of itself, that's rigorous. That has to be intentional. That has to just be an alert fight. But in this phrase, the passions of the flesh. Now, it's easy to think that Peter means the body because he uses the word flesh. But there's more to it. In the actual language that the Greek 
This is the, the noun here is actually the passions. This is what Peter wants us to focus on, the passions. Abstain from the passions. And then he describes what kind of passions these are. They are of the flesh. And flesh here just literally simply means earthly or temporary. And passions could also mean desires, affections. And so we can rightly understand the passions of the flesh as to abstain from earthly passions, from temporary passions, from temporary desires and affections. When you understand that Peter is calling us to fight against temporary affections, you begin to understand that the battle is actually against the limited perspective. It's it's a perspective that this life is only about this life. So let me try to make it as practical as possible. Just whatever, what, what what do you feel stressed about for tomorrow? Maybe at work, there's a deadline. You have a, if you're a student, you have a project coming up. Or maybe you're saving up for a down payment on something. Or you're really longing for a promotion at work. Or you're really wrestling about a relationship and what that person means to you. All these earthly pursuits, if it's not evaluated, if it's not thought through, if it's not considered, if it's not navigated, with an eternal perspective, then you've turned that, you've limited it to just an earthly affection, a temporary priority. It's not that we're not to pursue all those day-to-day, quote-unquote, earthly uh, matters, but we're to pursue those things, think about those things through an eternal lens. What is Jesus going to say about how I pursued blank? How does he want me to prioritize all these things that feel so important in my life? And and what perspective am I supposed to have on them in light of Christ and eternity and what he will bring me account to on that final day? Peter is exhorting us to pay attention to our hearts, therefore. We need to address where we would only inwardly prioritize temporary desires and affections or make those desires and affections what God has in him. He can redeem it to be a good thing, but we don't go that extra step to understand how he wants me to pursue my job, just to use that as an example, from an eternal perspective. And I just limit it to being something temporary. So Peter wants us to examine our hearts, our desires, our affections, to make sure that our motivations, our emotional attachments to people or things, that it's not only seen through a temporary lens. William MacDonald, a commentator, puts it really well, very insightful reflection, so I'll just read from him. Uh, He says, when we think of fleshly passions, we naturally think sexual sins, but the application is wider than that. It refers to any strong desire that is inconsistent with the will of God. It would include overindulgence in food or drink, catering to the body with excessive sleep, the determination to amass material possessions or the hankering for worldly pleasures. These are all temporary pleasures. And it's not that we can't have these things in Christ, but that we see them through Christ and therefore steward them in a way that Christ We'll say, well done. But if our only focus, if that is our ultimate priority, then 
we become earthly. We only think of this earth and that just has a sort of a vortex side effect of, of just getting all our motivations and the emotions involved and priorities and how we do relations it's all out of whack. And so any earthly affection that has lost sight of an eternal perspective, any pursuit that has dropped the all-important testing from an eternal perspective, any temporary affection that has lost the motivation of doing it for Christ, it becomes sin. And so we need to do the hard work in the heart. And then from there, from our belovedness, and then everything in our lives that we take account for, that we take stock of, how do we steward this well for the Lord? And of course, then this has to translate outwardly through our conduct. Holiness is not only about an attitude or a posture in the heart. God requires that it translates to action, to word and deed. And so Peter, I love just his sort of pastoral approach, his style, very clear and simple, to the point, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Now here is an imperative. This is a command. Keep your conduct. Meaning you and I have agency. You and I, by God's grace, empowering us, we have a choice. This is an intentional choice that you and I are to make each and every day, each and every moment, truly. And the imperative is to keep your conduct, your outward word and deed among the Gentiles. Functionally, when you see Gentiles in the New Testament, um, it's safe to just replace it as unbelievers. Of course, it means something more literal and specific, but, but in terms of just how this applies to us, keep your conduct among unbelievers honorable. So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You could just more simply, literally translate this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles good, kale. And whenever you see good works in the New Testament, it's kalon uh, ergon. This is the same idea. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles good so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good works and glorify God on the day of visitation. What Peter is exhorting us to is, even as you do good according to God's way, unbelievers, because of their skewed morality, they will actually, relatively speaking, subjectively to their own standard, think that you're an evildoer. And at least in my lifetime, I don't, I've never felt that more than today in the Toronto that we live in. But God's encouragement, say, don't worry. On that final day, I will bring justice. I will bring into my marvelous light and call everything as it actually was. So don't tire. Don't tire. Even if you are misunderstood, unjustly accused because of a false standard of truth. You keep your conduct good according to God's ways. And it'll become a final but 
too late witness to unbelievers on that day of judgment. The day of visitation is that final day of judgment. And God wants us to be encouraged. There will be a final reckoning. And if you're in Christ, you'll be on the right side. Again, however, what we should take away from this as well is that Peter, again, is dispelling any delusional notion that Christians should be isolating themselves or escaping. The expectation is for the church to live amongst unbelievers. Let your conduct amongst unbelievers be a witness. And so we need to ask and find answers to the challenging questions. How do we relate to our employers, our employees? How do we relate to our colleagues, to governing authorities, to established um, conflicting values in our culture and society? How do we celebrate sexuality as singles and married as Christ followers? How do we do singleness? How do we do marriage, family, friendships? How do we resolve conflict differently from the world? How do we parent and how do we steward our money? And on and on and on and on. And Peter is going to address some of these very everyday real, how do we do life in the world as a sojourner, as that soldier fighting the good fight, longing to head home, but keeping our conduct good amongst unbelievers. Peter's going to get very practical. And so over the next several weeks, especially in relation to government, marriage, and uh, work, so you can look forward to that. And as one commentator puts it, the Christian witness then has an inevitable social dimension by which it is judged. Okay, Our, our Christianity, it has to engage the real world out there somehow. And Peter is saying that our faith, the genuineness of our faith, it, one criterion that it'll, it, it's being, or it, well, let's just say under which it needs to, be, it needs to grow and mature is, is how it works out with people in the world. But even our witness, though, to come back to grace, in the gospel. Even our witness means nothing if we forget our belovedness, our citizenship, our true citizenship, our belovedness. Just to end uh, a story I heard. Um, every year in the U.S. and Canada, there are around 50,000 couples. Apparently, it's not well documented, but basically order, uh, male order marriage, bride or husband, right? Bride or groom, around 50,000 couples who are married just for the citizenship. Uh, and so there's a story of a bright young man who after several years of waiting his, for his permanent residency with no possibility to run his own business without legal papers and it wasn't happening according to his timeline, he decided to take a shortcut of basically becoming a, a male order groom. And so he found a lady, some 20-odd years older than him, accepting to marry him for $10,000 in cash. They married. He got a marriage license and permanent residency, hoping to become a full-fledged citizen eventually. But as mail-order marriages often go, he lived in another city with no relationship with his bride. He started a business, but this was a big mistake. She transformed him into a milking cow. 
and blackmailing him and demanding a steady flow of money. But long story short, he was deported. Every time letters came from his lawyers because it was addressed to the bride's address, he never got wind of uh, just needs and requirements that he had to fulfill. And so it's a sad story of someone who longed for citizenship, tied himself to to um, this bride and, and the laws of the land, but he missed all the opportunities to live here free and have a true loving wife and, and to truly live a good life. Now, I share the story to exhort us, just ending more on, I guess, uh, a cautionary tale, uh, a warning. I share the story to exhort us to keep our earthly citizenship in eternal perspective of our truest citizenship in heaven. The unfortunate man in the story, think of him that he could be like the church. The trickster lady in the story is like what scripture calls Babylon. Like the systems, kingdoms, cultures of this earth seeking to, it's stark language, but seeking to prostitute us, to make us not a people, to make us like gomers, but unredeemed, tempting us to make earthly citizenship ultimate because we want it so bad. We want this world so bad. But our calling is to remember our true sovereign, Jesus Christ. Let us not lose sight of our belovedness in Christ. Let us not become too tied to earthly temporary affections and passions and to test all those pursuits in view of eternity. And let us not lose out on our truest citizenship. And so, let's pray. Lord, as your beloved, help us to be holy. In Jesus' name, amen.